Amen. Well, go ahead and have a seat. Have a seat and uh, do me a favor and uh, open your Bibles up, if you don't mind, to uh, 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. You notice I didn't um, have us give the peace this morning because I'm afraid we'll never come back. So no, I'm kidding. It's a joke. It's a joke. But go to 1 Peter chapter 4 and... Um, We're going to see if we can close this book out here today. Can you believe that? I don't know. We'll see. I bet somebody, uh, if we didn't close this out, I would root for Michigan next year. So we got to go. So we got to go. So let's do this. Uh, We're going to start at verse 12. That's where we ended. I'm going to read a little bit to the end of this chapter, and we'll go on into the next But after I read this chapter, we'll pray together, okay, Uh, if you can. Also, if you were in Foundations of the Faith, uh, I have some of the books for you that the graduates from that, I should have had you graduates stand up. Uh, But anyway, see me after and I'll get you those books, okay, that we talked about last week. So let's do this. Uh, Verse 12, chapter 4 of 1 Peter, here's the word of the Lord. Beloved, don't think it strange or do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial. Not just the trial, the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Hmm. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody. (laughs) Well, let's just do that sermon. No, I'm kidding. Or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we need help with this. Uh, Some of the things Peter wrote, we need help in untangling. And so we're asking that you would do it by your Spirit and knit these things to our hearts so that as we move on from here and go out of here, as we encounter others, Lord, may we be able to glorify you by your power and Spirit. Thank you, Lord, taking us, the children of God, using the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, and having us impact a darker, hurting world, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it's interesting to look at the life of Peter. If you look at the life of Peter, then this book, especially these couple chapters, are going to make sense to you. But one of the things that Peter had said, isn't it amazing, in Mark chapter 8, verse 32, do you remember this? Talking about Jesus, it says, he spoke the word openly. 
And what he was talking about was that he'd have to suffer and die. Jesus spoke the word openly. Then Peter, in the Gospels now, we're not reading the Gospels, we're reading the epistle of Peter, the letter. Then Peter, in the Gospels, took him aside. Can you imagine that conversation? Hey, Jesus, uh, I think you've got this wrong. That's what Peter was doing. I don't want to embarrass you in front of the others, Lord, so why don't we talk separately here, and I'm going to uh, get you squared away on a few things. That's what Peter was doing. So he took him aside and began to rebuke him. And when, and the Lord rebukes Peter, but when he, or Peter rebukes him, but when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, get behind me, Satan. He actually called Peter, not that he was Satan, but that he was on the side of the enemy when he said he didn't have to march to the cross. Do you get it? And he said, get behind me, Satan, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So, see, the one who's writing the letter about suffering had been rebuked by the Lord about suffering. You catch that? And one of the great uh, themes of this chapter, we'll see it as we go through, as we get done today, is grace, is grace. And you can check out the grace of God in the book of Titus. It's just so fantastic. Uh, I might just have you turn there. Uh, Go to the book of Titus. You can check out the grace of God in the book of Titus, chapter 3. Or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 11. Sorry about that. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. See, in the American church, here's what I think we think grace is. Oh, you can just make as many mistakes as you want. You can just be as unholy as you want. You, you can just do what you want. You can be licentious. You have license to do what you want. We'll just count on the grace of God. But see, the grace of God is never that. It's never wimpy like that. That's just something made up by us in America, I think. No, the grace of God is a transforming, strong, powerful grace that transforms people's lives. Look at it. You can read it with me. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, why? That he might redeem us from every lawful deed and purify for himself his own special people to do what? Zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke. With all authority, let no one despise you. So if you turn back and if you examine the life of Peter, Peter had a lot of blunders. I mean, he had a lot of blunders, folks. But before I start pointing the finger at Peter, I always think, well, I've had a lot of blunders. But there's one very interesting thing about Peter's life. It's never recorded in the Gospels or in the Bible, post-Gospels, that he ever made the same mistake twice. And he made some doozy mistakes. I mean, think about it. How would you feel if you were the one on the last night of Jesus' life 
You were the one to deny our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, or I was the one to deny. How would you, how would you feel? You would feel shattered and bad. And yet, look, look, wait a minute, hold on. But the grace of God took him and picked him up and transformed him into a man who would write this letter, and it's all about suffering. He was the one who said, you don't have to suffer. What are you talking about? Transformed him into one who would write this letter about suffering. And we have been, over the last couple weeks, uh, examining suffering. Suffering for different reasons, right? Sometimes, folks, we suffer because we live in a world where things happen. Just things happen. You go out and you trip over the curb and hurt your back. I mean, come on. I, did, things just happen sometimes. We also suffer because of the things we do lots of times. We reap what we sow. I use the uh, uh, um, example of, you know, there's heart disease in my family. If I pour down cheeseburgers with extra sauce and all the fixing every day of my life for every day and get to the point where I'm in cardiac arrest and I say, Lord, why didn't you stop that from me happening to me? Well, come on, folks. I reaping, I'm reaping what I sow, right? And then we have an enemy of our souls who tries to get us off track. He comes as an angel of light, the Bible tells us. It also says in the Bible that he comes as a fowler in one of the Psalms. What is a fowler? He's one who grabs birds or pick, uh, uh, catches birds. What do you have to do to be a fowler? You have to be creeping around and very cunning and very quiet. It doesn't have to be Linda Blair. He comes as an angel of light. He comes as a fowler. He comes as a liar. He comes as a deceiver. He comes as an accuser. How many of you in here have said, I can't go back to church because of what I've done. I feel so condemned. You see, because the enemy, right? So, so we suffer sometimes because we don't follow the plan. We're going to read it today for spiritual battle. And then sometimes we suffer because we're Christians. Hmm. Just turn on the news, folks. Disagree with something in a disagree in a righteous way with something that the world system of thinking is okay. Do you get what I mean? Just do it. Do it publicly. You'll find yourself on Fox News, MSNBC, whatever like that. You might be up in the west part of the United States and you're a private little baking company and you might not want to sell to people who are practicing ungodly things. You'll find yourself in Supreme Court, right? So, so you, you're, you, the Bible says you're going to suffer for being a Christian, a good and godly Christian. Why? Because your life, in a sense, by the Holy Spirit that lives in you, convicts the world. And people don't feel good about it. Oh, you know what? You could talk about religion all day long. Church going. Oh, great. Be a church goer. But say you're a born again filled, a Holy, a Holy Spirit filled person and people will, and, and that you love Jesus and he's Lord of all and people will go, what is going on, right? And so 
We've seen that. Now, look at this. This one, Peter, who used to say, hey, Lord, I don't want any suffering in this life, especially for you, my king. This one said, beloved, I don't want you to miss that. The people that he loves, I love you, he says. There's coming a fiery trial, official governmental persecution. Rome is in power. This uh, letter's not written to Rome, but it's in a province ruled by Rome, and it's coming. And so, beloved, the people that I love, hey, don't think it's strange. In other words, expect it. That's what that means. Expect suffering for your stand for Christ or because the hope of glory lives in you. So, expect it. When you go to school, folks, I don't care if you go to a Christian school or not, expect it. When you go to work, what are you upset about when that happens to you? It's going to happen, he says it. When you're at the soccer games and you want to fit in with the other dads or the other moms, and you mention the name of Christ and they move down the way and say, "Uh, have a nice weekend, expect it. That's what the writer's saying here. You're, it's expected. There is coming a time, or there is times when it's uh, going to be that you're going to encounter a fiery trial, not just a trial, and it is to try you. That's an interesting thing. I want you to note this. Suffering in this way is not to penalize you. It's to purify you. Make sure you know the difference. It's not to punish you. It's to purify you. God is doing something in your life through suffering for the name of Christ. When you, by the way, when you get baptized now, you're making a pledge to all the world that I'm following the Lord no matter what, and I'm never coming back. No matter if somebody makes fun of you or puts you on MSNBC or NBC or CBS or Fox or whatever, you're going to follow the Lord. That's what you're saying in baptism. Something's happened to you, and now you're telling the world that I'm following the Lord. And oh, by the way, here's another thing you're doing. This has nothing to do with the sermon. You're also giving your brothers and sisters here the right to hold you accountable for your walk. We never think about that with respect to the baptism, but that's true. Well, here, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. But that word in the Greek right here, but rejoice, means continually rejoice. Oh, goody. I'm being persecuted. But you know, I'm not so sure The Lord's saying, and maybe in this case, yes, but all suffering, we are to jump up and down and click your heels. I mean, when my dad died, I didn't necessarily click my heels because my dad died. But amazing good things came out of the times that my dad died and that season that my dad died amazing, beautiful things. So I didn't think the Lord was saying to me, I want you to rejoice because your dad died. But he wanted me to know and realize and recognize that even in this horrific situation, I can turn bad things around for good. And he did. And in this case, though, when we're 
persecuted or suffering because of our stand for Christ, we are to rejoice continually to the extent, why? Why would you be able to rejoice continually? Here's why. The whole reason you're a Christian, what God's whole story of the Bible is, because you can fellowship now in a way with God that you couldn't previously. You've gone deeper with the Lord. That's what it says, that you can uh, rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. Why? Because when we read Philippians 1 and Philippians 3, Peter's counterpart or colleague, Paul, wrote, there's this mystery. He didn't say it this way, but that's what he was saying. There's this thing that happens when I get to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings, I come closer to him in some way. We, we, we have fellowship with Christ. We have fellowship with Christ. Listen to what happened in the, the uh, early church when they were persecuted for Christ's name. You remember this? In Acts 5, it said, So they departed from the presence uh, uh, of the council. They were before the council. The apostles were. <laughs> they were before the ruling authority of Israel. And they, I mean, can you imagine just that? You know, you're just some fisherman out on the Sea of Galilee, and they call you down to wherever uh, the council's meeting, and you're like, oh, man, let's pray about this. This is nerve-wracking. And you get in there, and they berate you for, you know, proclaiming the name of the Lord. And so uh, they departed from the presence of the council. It says in these passages that they were all beaten. Any of you ever been beaten for your faith? No, I didn't think so. Neither have I. Well, they were all beaten, but they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Why? Why? To be a martyr just to feel bad? Why? No, 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 no. Because there's this something that happens that you and the Lord can identify with and come together in fellowship through suffering for his name. He suffered for his name. We suffer for his name. When you take a stand for Christ, you suffer for his name. Well, look at this. As you continue on, you see this. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. By the way, in Hebrews 5.8, the Bible tells us, that through sufferings, our Lord learned obedience. <laughs> you can look that up after this and be astounded. He was fully God, fully man. And here it says, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Our Lord suffered and learned from it. You are suffering and you learn from it. But you not only can rejoice, you can have exceeding joy. When we're in persecution, listen to this, for our walk with God. See, when the world's in persecution or suffering, guess what happens to their hope and their joy? It tanks. But the Bible here says, from one who previously tried to argue with the Lord about suffering to one who came to know suffering... This one says, you, uh, for the Christian, our hope and joy go through the roof in persecution. And what's fascinating about it is, if you turn with me, 
over to John 16, I want you to see something. And this is really important. If you don't write anything else down today, write this down. Oh, everybody's pulling out their pens so fast. (laughs) Go over to John 16. I want you to see something. Oh, I'm in 17. I was like, whoa, that doesn't make sense. I'm going to start in verse 19. John 16, verse 19. Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while, and you might not see me. And again, uh, a little while, and you will see me. Verse 20. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful. But listen to this. What does the cross do? but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Now, this is an important distinction. I want you to see something. Here's what we pray. We pray wrong. Oh, Lord, get me out of this suffering and get me into joy. Replace my suffering with joy. That's what we pray. That's not biblical. (laughs) In this sense, do you catch it? He says he'll take your suffering and transform it into joy. And there's a huge difference. He'll take the ache and turn it into joy. It's a promise. And when you go back here, look at this. You say to yourself, when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad, verse 13, with exceeding joy. How could I be glad with exceeding joy? Because when you study and recognize what happened at the cross, you get that there's a bigger and higher purpose than just a man on a cross. Do you get what I'm saying? He's going to die and rise again. And for us, when we come into suffering for Christ's name, there's a bigger and higher purpose And that's to come into fellowship with the Lord in a more intimate and beautiful way where he actually takes sorrow and transforms it into joy, not replaces it. What a perspective the Lord gives us here, right? Well, keep going. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, if you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. What happens when you're approached for the, I don't want you to miss this, uh, for the name of Christ. Blessed are you, because what? The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now that's so staggering of a statement that it's almost too hard to believe. Remember in the Old Testament, it was always about the presence of the Lord and the Shekinah glory inside that traveling tent or tabernacle was a place where the Shekinah glory resided. Remember that? And then when it became a temple, there was a, the Holy of Holy Room where the Shekinah glory. What was the Shekinah glory? Well, we, no man can see God and live, and yet there was this Shekinah glory. There was this substance, this weight, this heaviness in a good way. It was his spirit, right? And remember, there was a cloud uh, by day and a fire at night, and the Israelites wouldn't move without it. You remember this? And they just watched the pre- for the presence. And when the presence said go, they went. When the presence said stop, they stopped. Got it? It was all about the presence of the Lord. In fact, in Exodus, it says, we ain't moving until we see the presence of the Lord. 
And the whole Bible from stem to stern is about the presence of the Lord. He's with them in the garden. In the end of the book, he'll be with us in the garden. It's the presence of the Lord. And here it says, look at this. Blessed are you if you receive suffering for, uh, uh, for the name of Christ, for the spirit of glory, that glory, that Shekinah glory, the Holy Spirit rests upon you. Do you remember, do you remember this, folks, in the book of Acts? Do you remember it? Does it just want you to make you want to jump up and down? Stephen's about ready to die. And get stoned to death for the name of the Lord. And what did the, does the writer tell us? That his face shone out. His face shone in suffering for the name of the Lord. There's something that happens to us. This spirit of glory comes upon us. The Holy Spirit fills us afresh. And we're blessed for the spirit of the glory and God rests upon you. And then listen to this. On their part, he is blaspheme. But on your part, he is glorified. So for the ones who are doing the persecuting, he is blasphemed. But, but for you, listen, he is glorified. And one of the ways in which you can think about glorification is making big. When you are rejoicing in suffering, folks... For the name of Christ now, guess what happens? You make God big in your life. You've made God big in your life. You say, man, that's hard. Well, hold on a minute. We'll get to that part. And then he goes and says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a busybody. Well, you say, well, I've never killed anybody. Yeah, but you've hated somebody. Oh, come on. I've never thieved anything. Well, I have, but maybe you haven't, but you've coveted something. I've never really done evil stuff, really. You've watched that movie. You've participated in that. So have I. But look at this, or as a busybody. See, what happens is, is when you get involved in those things, hatred, covetousness, thievery, evil doing, or being in other people's business when you shouldn't be in other people's business, look at this. The Bible says you could suffer for that. And what Peter is saying is, hey, listen, folks, the redeemed, hey, folks out in the churches, don't suffer for those things. You could. If you do it, Christians, you're going to suffer. You reap what you sow. You want to be a busybody and talk about people and say things behind their back? It could come back to really make you suffer. You want to hate somebody in your heart and pour that out to somebody, you know, at work and then they get wind of it? Hmm. You could really suffer for these sorts of things. And what Peter is saying, don't do that. What he's saying is, if you do suffer, suffer as a Christian. Only one of a few times here in the New Testament where that word is used. You know it was first used at Antioch. But a Christ follower. Suffer as a Christian. And don't be ashamed. Now, see, you can see, this is what's so beautiful about this letter. I'm going to freak those IT people out again when I start walking around. But this is what's so beautiful about this letter. I want you to see it at every turn. 
If anybody had a right to be ashamed, it was Peter. And he could get to the point, by the grace of God, that's what I want you to see, by the grace of God, he could get to the point where he was not ashamed. Think about what he did. (laughs) When you read what Peter did, are you like me, very like pharisaical, right? I can't believe he would do that. What an idiot, man. How could he do that to our Lord? And then we do it sometimes. Here he says, don't let him be ashamed, or let him not be ashamed, but let him what? Glorify God in this matter. When things come, fiery trials, when fiery trials come, when a fiery trial comes, when you stand up in the group and nobody else stands up with you and you speak up for righteousness and love and forgiveness, I would forgive that person. You know, you can just go out on social media for about 1.1 milliseconds and you can see all the bad uh, advice. The one that gets me is, oh my gosh, there's so much drama, make your circle smaller. It's so unbiblical. If somebody's drama me, I'm just going to forget them and they're not going to be part of my friend group. Heck with them. That's not the attitude. That's not the attitude. The attitude is, I'll stand up and say something. And if they want to do what or leave me or do whatever, okay, I'll still love them. But I have to stand up for righteousness here. And if you do that, not ashamed, by by the way, Hebrews tells us that Jesus isn't ashamed of us and that God the Father isn't ashamed of us. (laughs) And also the Gospels tells, tells us if you're ashamed of the Father's name, you know that scripture, right? But you won't be ashamed when you catch the grace of God. That's the point. But let him glorify God in this matter. Again, make God big. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? See, this is why the church goes against everything that the world is, or the world goes against everything that the church is. They would say, no, no, freak out, run around, pour your heart out on Facebook, tell everybody on Instagram how terrible your life is. Here he says, by the grace of God, he doesn't just pat you on the head and say, be strong. No, he gives you the grace to be strong. Watch. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. So we can't go around pointing the fingers at other people unless we've gotten the little, the humongous plank out of our eye. Watch getting somebody's speck out of their eye because judgment begins here. We, because we're regenerate, we're, 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 we're born again, we're spirit filled. We should be the ones who should be most militant about sin. When somebody says to you, man, you know, I mean, the thing that you said and were thinking, it was so bad. You know what we should probably say when they say that? (laughs) I was thinking way worse and wanted to say way worse. You're right. You know what I'm saying? Living a transparent life there. And to be militant against sin, judgment starts in the house of God. It starts in the church. If we want to have real Spiritual awakening, folks, we first must have a revival. And a revival is a cleansing. And a cleansing is a calling sin what it is within the church. Well, I'm Irish. I got an anger problem. No, you're not Irish and have an anger problem. You're a sinner. 
Amen. And all kinds of things that we can come up with to lessen the impact of what we do because we don't want to call it what it really is. Judgment begins at the house of God. So let's confess our sins. God, who's faithful and just, will forgive our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and we keep moving on in fellowship with the Lord. For the time has come for judgment to begin right here. And if it begins with us first, what will the end of those who don't obey the gospel of God? What will be their end? Oh my goodness. What about the unregenerate, he says? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, that doesn't mean salvation. That means once you're saved, listen, discipleship and standing up in the middle of everybody who's not standing up for God's name is difficult, folks. You might be the only one. You're going to need the major grace of God, right? And so he says this, and he quotes this uh, verse from the Old Testament, if the righteous one is scarcely saved. I mean, it's, it's a miracle that we're saved. Wouldn't you say it's a miracle that you're saved? I would say it's a miracle that I'm saved. Where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? In other words, don't get hung up on the theology right there. What he's trying to make the point is, is man, oh man, knowing what you know, knowing what I know, let's have a heart for the lost Let's have a heart for them. Folks, people on Facebook don't have all the answers. People on Instagram, Twitter, they don't have all the answers because they don't know Jesus. You should expect some of the outlandish things that people say. They don't know Jesus. Well, it goes on, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God, according to the will of God, suffering can be according to the will of God. For his sake, for righteousness sake, for his name's sake, what, what should we do? Commit our souls, commit their souls to him. It's a fascinating word. In the ancient world, when somebody would go away, they didn't have banks. So they would pick their most trusted friend to leave their money with. You were committing your money to your most trusted friend. It was like the, the most trustworthy thing that you could do. That meant you were buds, Right? That's what this word means. And he's saying, according to the will of God, commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Uh, By the way, uh, Jesus used this, they used the same word in the language when Jesus said, I commit my spirit. Same one. Commit. What you do in suffering, what are you to do in suffering? Commit your soul. Commit everything to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Why would he say faithful creator right there? I think why he would say a faithful creator instead of a judge or something like that is because he wants you to know he's a provider, the one who created all things. He'll provide everything you need if you'll stand up for righteousness and take the persecution. Not only take it, thrive in it. You catch that? Okay, so now let's go on. We're talking about suffering This is interesting to me. So Peter then, penning the last chapter of his first letter, talking about suffering, if you, you you know, covered up your Bible, I wouldn't guess that this would be the next topic, and yet it is, and it tells you how important this next topic is. So no matter where you go to local fellowship, what you do, Elders or leaders of the church are very important. And they're very important in times of suffering. If your church has been set up, your fellowship has been set up 
the right and biblical way. They're going to be doing what they're called to do as the leaders of the church. And when you get to the place of suffering for Christ's name, your uh, hope and joy won't go that way. It'll go that way. You see? Look at this. So Peter says, the elders who are among you, I exhort. The elders, the leaders, everywhere uh, Paul and Barnabas went to all the places that they would uh, uh, evangelize and set up churches. What was one of the first things they would do? They would find leaders and set them over the church. You have leaders here. If you don't know who those leaders are, well, they're on the bulletin board downstairs. But we have elders here, Andy, Mashenko, and and Mike Reynolds, and Xander, and uh, myself, and then we actually have uh, two pastors, uh, one from Pittsburgh and one from uh, Erie, who participate in our uh, calls. But really, for your local leadership, those are four men who are among you. Listen to this. The elders who are among you, I exhort, Peter says. (laughs) This is fascinating, folks. Remember, Peter's writing this. He's not the grand pope or the pontiff. Listen to what he says. I who am a fellow elder, (laughs) I'm right there with you, man, right down in the trenches, Peter says, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Well, when did he witness the sufferings of Christ? Well, some people say, you know, there's this one uh, scripture in Luke where some of them looked from afar. They say he might have looked upon the actual cross, but maybe, maybe not. Uh, you remember, most of them, except John, evacuated, got out of the way when the cross was actually happened, when Jesus was nailed to the cross. But certainly, remember, Peter was there in the courtyard of the high priest, and he was watching and hearing the trials and what the outcomes of the trials were and the slapping and the spitting and the... Remember? So he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. When was Peter a partaker of the glory? Come on, you all know this, at the Mount of Transfiguration. You know this. See, here's what I want you to get. He's writing this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, given his life experiences. It's all throughout the book. It's supernaturally natural. You catch that? In other words, I want you to see this. Peter had a dynamic communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we see his blunders. That's why I took you to some of the things that he said pre-letter. We see his blunders at the Mount of Transfiguration. Oh, this is cool. Hey, Lord, I'll make three booths. I'll make three booths for the people I saw up here today. As if Jesus was on par with the other two people he saw up there today. And it's like, come on, man, why'd you say that? Right? You see what I'm saying? But what was happening, God was turning these around by the grace of God into things that stuck with Peter and that propelled him to more Christ-likeness. And he's writing this all throughout. You can see his earlier life. He's a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. And listen to what uh, he says under the Spirit to the elders of a church. If your elders aren't doing this, run. The first thing he says is shepherd the flock. It actually means feed the flock. Now, come on, folks. 
What story from Peter's life do you remember about feeding the flock? When he was restored, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. You see, it came from Peter's life. It came from his relationship with the Lord. Feed my sheep. So what are elders to do? They're to shepherd the flock of God. I got news for you though, folks. We're the flock, right? The elders are to feed them and to protect them and to look after them. But sometimes sheep, I hate to say it, not so paying attention. And they stray and they run off. And also, they're not very defense, or they're defenseless. They can't defend themselves sometimes. Sheep can't. And elders, in the right way, in the appropriate way, in the good way, in the healthy way, are to be those people who are out front leading. You don't necessarily drive a herd of sheep. You lead them. You go to the places that they're going, but you go first. You inspect, you look, you check for the snakes and the, right? And then you say, come on, let's go together. You know each one of the sheep by name. And you sing over them, pray. Do you see just from the picture there what elders are supposed to do? Elders, the leaders spiritually of the church, not are up here, although they are overseers, but they're among us. We're among together. We're doing this together, and yet they lead. That's what elders do. And the number one thing is they feed the flock of God, which has given you the word, and making sure you understand the word, and teaching you Isaiah on Wednesday nights, even when you don't want to do it, or First Kings, or Second Kings, Why? So that we can give you the whole counsel of God, the whole counsel of God. Not that you don't know snippets of it, but that you know the whole counsel of God. That's what a shepherd is to do, which is among you, serving as overseers. Yes, we meet together and we try to take the pulse of the the congregation. And if people are hurting and struggling, we, we try to recognize that and see if we can go and exhort them and prop them up, but then give them the word, the word, the word. Shepherd the flock. And we don't do it. Listen, elders are not to do it by compulsion, but willingly. I got news for you, folks. These elders don't get paid. (laughs) Think about that. Because they do a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff you don't see. They do a lot of stuff. And they care about the people. That's what drives all the decisions, caring about the sheep. And they meet together, and they pray together, and they make decisions together, and they keep their own walk with the Lord going. And they do it, listen, not by compulsion. No one's giving them money, but they do it willingly because they want to advance the kingdom of God. This also leaves no room for any leader in the church to be lazy Are you catching that? We shouldn't have to make you do stuff. Can you imagine if the pastor, you know, I mean, I'm going to be frank with you. None of you know basically what I do all week. Can you imagine if I just played golf, shot skeet, Road go-karts, that's a joke. I'm joking, that's a joke. 
or whatever, watch football games and didn't study the word of the Lord and didn't uh, bring to you meat. And I just gave you some sermonettes and patted you on the head and had you go out the door. That would go against what the Lord is telling us here. To not be lazy too, but to, but to do it because of the love of the real shepherd. We're just under shepherds for his people. And doing it by feeding them, that's what we're doing. Nor as being lords over them. You know that story. We're, we're not to be lords over anybody. We're not to lord it over anybody. We're to be the first servants, leaders in the church, the first servants. But sometimes, folks, sheep stray. Like if my brother is going down the road of pornography, we got to have a talk. Or if I am, you got to have a talk with me. Okay, that's not lording it over anybody. That's being concerned about the spiritual health of somebody. That's different. But no, not being lords over people, but being servant over those who are entrusted to you. Notice that these, you folks, are entrusted at Calvary Chapel, South Pittsburgh, if you call this our home, to the elders here. We're, we're stewards, in a sense. And we all want you to be there. Where the Lord will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And it's funny because we have people from all backgrounds here. People who've studied the Bible for 40, 50, 60 years, know the Bible inside and out. And then we have people that don't know the Bible. And we have everybody in between. We have people who are more conservative in their theology. People who are more liberal in their theology. We have everything. And the Bible says, you know, if, if I was ever tempted, which I'm not, to get frustrated with all of you, Look what the Bible is telling me. But wait a minute. Not all of you, but maybe, maybe, maybe somebody has a different view on the atonement than I do. By the way, there's so many different views, but maybe somebody has a little bit different view or a different view on eschatology. And I have definite thoughts about eschatology. But I remind myself, okay, let's talk about those things and be brothers and sisters afterwards because for some reason, the Lord has entrusted you here for us to minister to, even if we disagree on some of those points. You see what I'm saying? You're entrusted to us, and so we take that seriously. And, but here's the hard one for me to say, almost too hard to read to you. But bottom line, he says, is I want you to be an example to the flock. Ay, ay, ay. Oh, my. That's a tough one to say. You see why people who teach and lead and those sorts of things are held to a different standard? And here he says, you be an example. Oftentimes, uh, a church will take on the, 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 um, the style of the leadership. You know that? And I wonder, I wonder sometimes, what would they say about... Our fellowship, oh, they're really sarcastic. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but be an example. That's what elders are to do. And when the chief shepherds appear, listen, elders, you're going to receive the crown of glory that doesn't fade away. Likewise, younger people, now you can wake up. Younger people, this doesn't necessarily mean young in age, but young in maturity in the word. Whatever, younger people, submit yourself to your elders. And submission is an act of faith. You recognize that that's what the order is in the Bible, and you said, I will by faith 
direct our lives according to what God says and count on him to work it out for his purposes. And so I'm going to submit myself to the elders in the appropriate way, in the good way. Got something in my eye, sorry. (laughs) So yes, submit yourself to the elders. Yes, also, all of you be submissive to one another. What if we were submissive to one another, folks? Holy cow. You would stop church fights in its tracks. Oh, you know, I wanted to be on the uh, Red Hat Committee, but you beat me out. Great, you take that spot. What happens in lots of churches? You're on the Red Hat Committee, you excluded me. There's only room for 10. I'm the 11th. I'm not talking to you anymore. Or whatever. And it busts up churches. Here, what if we submitted to one another kindly? For God resists the proud. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. And be clothed with humility. Now, that's another fascinating example from Peter's life. Do you remember on the last night in which Jesus was betrayed, what did he do before he got down on his knees and washed the feet of the disciples? He girded himself. And here, this speaks of that. He clothed himself with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble, folks. Therefore, humble yourselves under not just the hand of God, but the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. He will exalt you in due time. And what should you do in the middle of suffering? Count on your, we are counting on your elders to have trained you up. We've counted on your elders to train you up. The younger people in the fellowship are submitting to the leadership of the church. And everybody is submitting to one another in humility as we prepare ourselves for suffering. One of the things that we have to do and have to recognize is we're scared. We're worried, Lord. And you said, don't worry. So he says, cast your cares upon him. It's a fascinating word that says, like, throw them at him. Get, get him over there as fast as you can. Get your cares over there to him. Tell him your cares. Explain to him your cares. Tell him what you're concerned about. Do that and then give it unto him and let, stand back and let the Lord do your battles. Cast your cares upon him because it is unnerving to go through a suffering humanly without the Lord in your life, right? So cast your cares. And then he says, but also remember, be sober, be clear-minded, be vigilant. I mean, stay on top of this. Don't be drowsy. That's a good word for today. But don't be drowsy because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion. When do you think the roaring lion, the adversary, can really get you. It's when things don't happen the way you want them to happen. Lord, I prayed that this fracture in my elbow would be gone by tomorrow morning. I need to, I don't know, play the piano this Friday night, and I woke up this morning, Lord, and you didn't do it. And then the enemy says, listen, does he even care about you? Are you even worth anything to him? Does he even notice you? The enemy just shoots fiery darts and suffering, folks. Uh, uh, You take a stand for Christ and you lose all your business. (laughs) The enemy comes in and says, do you really think he cares about you? You just lost all your business. 
See, it's at those times when the roaring lion, boom, comes in. And he says, be vigilant because your adversary will walk about seeking whom he may devour. So you and I, we're to resist him. And you could go to Ephesians 6 and see how to resist him. And I would tell you, you know what I'm about ready to say, how to resist him. Stay in the word, stay in prayer, stay in praise, stay in fellowship. But a lot of people don't want to do any of those uh, because they're so upset about the suffering. But he says do it, but then here's the one I want you to... In Ephesians 6, when he's telling you to put it on the armor of God, what does he say, wrap the whole present with? Thanksgiving. You know what happens in suffering. Come on, folks, be real. I can't believe this. Me? I mean, I taught Sunday school for 10 years. Now I stand up for Christ and all my business goes away. I can't believe this. What are you really saying? Lord, you have no idea what you're doing. Your word's not true. And I don't believe you. And the enemy comes in and gets you. Well, resist him. How did the Lord resist the devil when the devil took him out in the wilderness up on the temple? By the word of God, by the word of God. Make sure you know the word of God. Because he is walking around and remains steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. There's others who are standing up for Christ who are having these same experiences. But here it comes. Here it comes. All right. I know. You're ready to go. I got it. But may the God of all grace. This isn't a kick-in, folks. This is the fuel. He has all grace. He has unmerited favor. He's going to work it out. He fights your battles. He's the God of all grace. It's been throughout all of this book. Turn with me to one, chapter 1, verse 10. When he started out with salvation, salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Salvation is by grace. Go to uh, verse uh, 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully. What should you rest your hope fully upon? The grace that is brought to you at the revelation of of Jesus Christ. Look in 4.10. When we minister, we minister as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. It's we're all delivering God's grace. God uses us to deliver God's grace. You know it just even today. How beautiful. Wyoming, South Carolina, Pennsylvania. Where else? South, uh, where else? South Carolina, where else? What? Virginia. Virginia. Listen, I know what the Lord's going to do with you. When you get to your beachhead, he's going to be one to fuel you with his grace so that you can deliver it out to the people who need it. You're manifold deliverers of the grace of God. And then you go to where we just were, but may the God of all grace, he's all grace, he has all grace, called us to his eternal glory. We're called to his eternal glory. David Gudzik says this about this scripture. This is the glory of purified character. This is the glory of perfected humanity. This is the glory of complete victory. Good song today. It's the glory of being honored by a king. It's the glory of reflecting the glory of God. It's the glory of the immediate, constant presence of God. And it's the glory of the enjoyment of God himself. May the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory. That's all for you. 
In fact, in the first chapter of this book, he said we were going to get an eternal inheritance. That's it. All of those things and more. The eternal glory by Christ Jesus. You catch that? He's called you to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you've suffered a little while. Look at this. These things, these things that you're working through are going to perfect you. Now, if you're a contractor here, you've ever poured, anybody here ever poured walls or a foundation? It has to what? Settle. And then it becomes solid and stable. That's the word that was used right there. Sufferings through persecution are going to settle you, lay a foundation. They're going to, oh, I I did that one last, sorry. They're going to perfect you, sorry. And that means delay the foundation, uh, what I said. And then establish you, establish you, make you able. Listen, establish, what does it mean? Make you able to um, face life's demands. What I was saying earlier, I don't care. You guys can say I'm a a chicken, uh, uh, not courageous, not brave. Sometimes I don't feel like leading. Just being honest with you. Sometimes, uh, you know, on a Saturday and stuff, just being totally, brutally honest with you. I feel like just having a carefree day. And sometimes I get to do that. But God's called me to something different, and guess what I need? I need established I need to be able to face what God's put in front of me. You see it? And so do you. You need to be established, and you need to be strengthened. We need strength. You can't just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If you do, you're going to crash. You need the Lord's strength. And settle you. That's laying the foundation. Sorry. Perfect make you mature, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Those are all things that the Lord will do through suffering. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever by by Silvanus. Listen to this. That's Silas, who was uh, very active at the uh, Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. He's our faithful brother as I consider him. I want you to catch this. I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testify that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. In other words, you're going to need this word. And you need the grace of God, and I need the grace of God. Grace isn't just to come into the family of God. It's to stand in and live the entire family of God. You need his resource and strength and ability to do it. You cooperate with him, sure, but you need him, and so do I. It's the true grace of God in which you stand. It's true grace. It's a transforming grace. It's not a wimpy grace that just excuses everything you do. That's not grace. It's his grace that transforms you into Christ-likeness. And sometimes, folks, sometimes, sometimes it's uncomfortable. Well, she who is in Babylon, probably it means the church who is in Rome. We talked about that in service number one on this. Elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark. There he shows up. Isn't that interesting? See, Peter and Mark were buds. Mark wrote a gospel. Here he is here, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. And you know this. In the early church, they used to greet one another with a kiss, a holy kiss. Well, peace to you, all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Paul, right? He wrote about faith. 
John, he wrote about love. Peter, he wrote about hope and peace. Remember now, as we close this out and we pray, first you need to have peace with God by the blood of His Son being reconciled back to the Father, His death and resurrection. You need peace with God. But then the Bible tells us that we can have the peace of God. That peace that comes in when no one else is peaceful or should be peaceful according to human standards. That peace, that peace that transforms all understanding. What is the bedrock of it all? Grace. God's grace. Here's Peter living these things out in real time with our Lord and Savior, not always doing the right thing. In fact, making some serious blunders, we, we would say. God's grace never gave up on him. After the resurrection and the restoration of Peter, he goes on to write this letter all about suffering and hope and grace. It's what God uses now by the Spirit of God to help us live this out in a hurting and dark world. Some of you right now are going through suffering. I'm sorry for that. But I hope and pray that even through this letter, now that you've studied it and thought about it, and as you continue to study and think about it, that you and I and we in the middle of of suffering for Christ's name, we'll be able to stand in our homes and rejoice continually. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you for this day and thank you for this beautiful word. Lord, I thank you for um, um, these insights into sufferings, partaking of them with you and for you, Lord. Lord, help us because as we move and grow and as time gets short here, Christians, no doubt, will be picked on or persecuted, however you want to say it. Lord, help us to be people who would love intensely when the mud's being slung. When we're reviled, Lord, help us to love people. Lord, help us to listen and grow in your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Well, God bless you guys, and you have a great week. If there's anything we could do or pray for you about, please come up after. Interact with the graduates. Interact with the fathers. And have a great week. God bless you guys.